Welcome to a bonus episode of the Tom Schumer podcast. As many listeners know, in the United States, the Biden administration last Monday, February 22nd, announced that state education departments would have flexibility surrounding standardized testing this year, but would not have the broad authority to cancel those examinations. So essentially mandating that those tests go ahead. Now, some of the flexibility they talked about included pushing the exams until the summer or the fall, administering the tests remotely, and maybe even offering shortened versions. But that, of course, stands in contrast to what happened last spring when districts were permitted to cancel standardized testing during the early stages of the pandemic. So I thought to myself, what better person to have on to help us sort through all of this than Tom Gusky. So, Tom, welcome back to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Well, thanks, Tom. It's really a pleasure to be back with you. Yeah, wonderful to have you back. You are my first return guest, and I wish it was under different circumstances, maybe, but uh, the issue at hand is standardized testing, so I want to dive right into that conversation. And I want to divide this conversation into two parts. First, uh, I want to get your take on the recent announcement from the Biden administration. But then after that, I want to have maybe an adult conversation about standardized testing, uh, which, of course, can be challenging when you're confronted by the Twitter mob and uh, the group think that can kind of permeate this conversation um, that always seems to surround standardized testing. So let's jump in. And I want to ask you first, uh, when it comes to standardized testing, given the recent announcement and the decision that was made by the Biden administration, and of course, in the midst of the pandemic. Um, this is definitely a hot button issue now for all educational stakeholders. Some are arguing it is critical to understand uh, how remote learning has impacted student achievement, while others are arguing that administering the exams is insensitive, it's tone deaf, and it's just another burden that students and teachers don't need. So uh, what's your reaction to the recent announcement by the Biden administration? Well, let me start by saying, it's clearly a political move, and we need to understand the nature of the politics and what the ramifications of the politics might be. If you were a national leader that you really wanted to do something to support education, and you were confident that the situations that educators have had to deal with over the last year plus had really impacted their ability to help students learn well, and you really wanted to be able to do something from the national level, federal level, to, to help them, you'd have to have some good information. Now, the information that we had from last year wasn't so good. I mean, the only report that gained a lot of sort of popularity was a report from the NWEA folks who had looked at achievement across the states. And, and what they found in their report was that even going to remote learning, there hadn't been a really strong impact on language arts and only modest reductions in mathematics. But what was also an important aspect of that report is that about 25% of the students in each state were missing. Right. They were not a part of the report and they were overrepresented by children of color and those from economic disadvantaged backgrounds. So it's likely those results were really inflated. So if you are a president and you want to argue that we need to support public education, the first thing you would do is, is appoint a, an educator <laughs> as its secretary of education, right. uh, which he did with Miguel Cordero. Yeah. Um, and then you'd also wanna have good in information, evidence that you could use to, to support educators and to say, we need to help you out and we're going to provide federal dollars to do that. Well, to get that information, he's gotta ask the states to gather it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that they did with it though, that a lot of people don't sort of recognize is that along with asking the states to do it, they removed all the consequences from it. 
So what they're saying is that the consequences of the use of are not going to impact you in terms of any judgment of the state or the education system, of schools, of teachers, or of students. We're removing all the high-stake consequences from it. We just need the evidence. And built into the federal law was this notion that states had to have about a 95% completion rate on the assessments. So it gathered information from those most vulnerable populations mm -hmm. of students. And so I, I think that it was done in a way that was really pro-education, that was saying, we, we want to be able to support you, but we need to make the case that the support's necessary. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that evidence now. Help us gather that information. And then we'll use that to say, the federal government needs to step in and really help educators out in a public education forum to really be able to do that. So I don't see it as, as really negative. Now, you know, when you do things like this, you have to consider both sides. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to administer those exams, it's going to take some time and it's gonna take some cost. Uh, we have to make sure the assessments are pretty good, but that's the responsibility of the states. Mm -hmm. They have to ensure that there is some validity between what this assessments cover and the state curriculum, what the kids are taught. Current evidence indicates that's often not so. But I think that I think that from a political perspective, it was really the right thing to do to gather the information that they have to have in order to really fund education in bigger and better ways. Right. So so from your perspective, you're not seeing this decision as being entirely negative. The the same way there's certainly been a lot of knee-jerk reaction to to the response, but I think I think you know uh, you're right because I wasn't, um, and obviously as a Canadian, I'm not completely dialed into uh, the 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 intricacies of the decisions. But from from what you're describing here, it sounds like the the intent uh, is to really gather evidence without the consequences, without you know beating teachers up with the data, without ranking schools, without having funding associated with it, without taking all of those high stakes elements away. So, do you think really right now collectively, and I know we can't cast everyone in as to one sort of group or monolith. But do you think right now there is a collective overreaction to the decision that was made? Well, I do think that's the case. Uh, we know that educators are struggling and then to say that we're going to impose testing on top of the other issues with which you're having to deal is, is really tough. Yeah. But I think in the best way possible, what the current administration said is we need formative information. And, and the way we're going to make that formative is by removing all the high stakes consequences from the results. Okay. We're taking those away. We're letting you know that we're taking those away. Yeah. And so in that way, we can use this information as a basis for funding programs to help you do better yeah. and improve and, and get back on track, knowing that the pandemic caused you to make changes that were unwelcomed and mm -hmm. in many cases for which we're unprepared. Why don't you think that is more well known by folks? Um, and and maybe I'm falling victim to you know the the echo chamber of social media, or maybe I'm falling victim to just the the news sources that I consume. But that part of the announcement seems to be missing from a lot of people uh, a lot of people's reaction to. Why do you, why do you think that is? Why is that not getting as much attention? Well, I think that that. In recent years, especially with sort of opt-out options available, um, it, it's made testing seem to be uh, this sort of evil uh, force that is trying to impose itself upon education in ways. Yeah. Uh, I prepared a, a blog for 
solution tree last year that asked, they asked me to address specifically the notion of standardized tests. And I think one of the biggest challenges of that was just to educate people about what a standardized test is. Right. And when we say standardized test, what we're saying is that it's a test administered under some standard conditions. And so we basically try to administer the same or comparable items in the same way. We look at the results in the same way. We generate discourse in the same way. We impose all these things, not to remove those conditions, but to allow comparability and results mm -hmm. that we can, we can compare results over time for students or we compare different groups of students. Right. But most of the tests in our society are actually standardized in that way. Yeah. When you have your blood pressure checked, that's a standardized <laughs> test. Right. And, and all health tests are that way. But the other thing to recognize is that there's nothing that says that it has to be a test of multiple choice items administered in time format. I mean, any test format is appropriate in a standardized fashion. So if you have a performance demonstration, that's a standardized test. Mm -hmm. As long as we have the same conditions for all students that are making that particular demonstration performance. So the standardization is not the issue. But it, it makes it an easy target, an easy label for us to, to want to be angry about and hate. Right. It, it becomes almost a, that focal point for sure. And, and you know, I, I agree with you in the sense that, you know, any assessment can certainly be a standardized test. I mean, obviously, the format of multiple choice has a lot of control for reliability in terms of scoring versus, say, a performance task where you'd have to calibrate on criteria to ensure there was consistency. But, but the idea that, uh, uh, you know, I've said for years that tests shouldn't be criticized simply because they are standardized. That's not really a valid criticism of a standardized test. So um, as we look forward in light of this announcement and, and certainly keeping in mind that states and districts are in different places, uh, schools are in different places and levels of readiness, what, what advice would you give to schools and districts in terms of how they can best prepare? And given this announcement, how do they prepare going forward? Let's do this in two parts. First, let's talk about preparing the students directly. So what should teachers and schools and districts be thinking about? Are there any things they should be thinking about now in light of this announcement in terms of preparing students to be ready for those exams? Yeah, well, there certainly are, Tom. And one of the first would be, if we're going to use these assessments in a formative way, then we might need to make sure the information we gather from them is accurate. In order to be accurate, there has to be alignment between what the assessments or the tests cover and what it is that's a part of our curriculum. Now, researchers have looked at this, and unfortunately, in many states, their state assessments are devised by third parties, outside vendors, and, and they want to do it in the, the cheapest way they can. So they, they open up their test banks and try to say that our tests match your curriculum really well. But Analyses of those, what we call a sort of alignment study or validity study of the match between the test and the curriculum, shows that in many type cases that only about half the curriculum is ever covered on the state assessment, and over half the items on the assessment aren't even addressed in the curriculum. So when you have a mismatch, formatively, you're not getting the good information that you need. And for these results to be really useful for teachers, there has to be that alignment. We have to be able to ask the question, are the kids learning well the things that we taught and the things we said were important for them to learn? So the first bit of advice I'd, I'd offer is look at your state assessments and, and make decisions about how well they are aligned with your state curriculum. If they're testing things kids haven't been taught, then you're not going to get any good information about it. And the only 
really good reason for giving those tests in the first place is to help kids learn. And in order to help kids learn, we have to have good information from it. So check that 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 alignment, that validity first in terms of its its match to the instruction and the curriculum that the kids are really being taught. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you when you talk about the the disconnect between the assessment and and the curriculum. It's no wonder we see we we see gaps in results where um, and, and we know that standardized tests don't necessarily have a uh, a 1.0 correlation with classroom assessment, but we we also see larger gaps because if you're not assessing what was taught in in the classroom, then clearly you're going to have results that are skewed and as you say, are not helpful to us in terms of guiding our decisions around around what to do next for learners and are is our state or is our jurisdiction serving the needs of the learners um, you know across that jurisdiction and not just acutely for one individual student. Um, anything else? Thoughts around preparing st students and then thinking about logistically what what districts and schools uh, might do to help students prepare or or districts might do to prepare you know for uh, maximizing the opportunity to gather some formative information uh, through these assessments since they are being mandated. Right. Well, I think the second point would be that you need to understand that these outside vendors, these testing corporations, um, are, are trying to develop assessments to get the most amount of information in the least amount of time with the least amount of cost. But the things that are easiest to assess are not always the most valuable learning outcomes. And so if we really want our students to be applying skills in new and different ways, transfer what they're learning to new and different contexts, uh, to be able to analyze situations and, and talk about comparisons and, and contrasts between things, then it's likely those cannot be really captured well on the typical multiple choice items. Now, there are lots of great things that multiple choice items can do, but there are things they can't do too. So what we'd want to do is to ensure teachers have a strong voice in asking the state to prepare an assessment that really captures those things we consider most important for kids to learn. That means broadening the, the repertoire of assessment techniques, that all state assessments should have some writing attached to it. Now, it's harder to score those. It's more expensive to score those, but they give you some really good information. And if we can move too away from accountability measures that look at individual students to accountability measures that look at schools, then it broadens the repertoire of assessment techniques you can use. Because if we had like a science assessment that was really performance-based, you know, Shabelson and others indicate that to get a good assessment on science when it's performance-based, you probably need, you know, 12 to 15 performance tests. Well, if every kid has to take 12 to 15, that's two hours of testing. And it's really difficult to do that, right? But if we did what's called item sampling, what you can do is you can have every kid take two or three items but then have different kids take different items. That gives you highly reliable evidence at the school level, but not at the individual student level. But since accountability is for educational programs at school level anyway, so if we can just redefine the way we consider accountability and move towards school level accountability versus having to do it for individual kids, then we can really broaden our repertoire of assessment formats 
and gain very valuable information about what's most important for kids to learn. Yeah, it, it seems, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering sort of the, the conversations when ESSA replaced No Child Left Behind, and there seemed to be at least some promise that states would have a lot more flexibility and a lot more control over the design. But, but I think to your point, the, the scoring of, of performance tasks, the scoring of constructed response items is definitely more labor intensive. And yet it's ironic that you would have jurisdictions who believe heavily that standardized testing is the pathway toward ensuring that all students are successful and yet not investing the necessary funding in order to, to make that happen. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that that um, there, there are things we can do from a sort of technical perspective, just the, the, the basis for accountability. If we change that from having to have highly reliable data at the individual student level to only having to worry about highly reliable data at the school level, it would broaden so much the repertoire of techniques that we can use and the types of assessments and for the same cost. I mean, we could we could really do it for a reasonable cost if we just made made that subtle shift, and it reduced testing time for kids. Uh, you get more valuable information that schools could use in a formative way to really improve their programs. There are so many positives to it, but it it means trying to educate policymakers and legislators. Yeah to those kinds of dimensions, which they often don't understand very well. Right, and it's just easier to run a bubble sheet through a scanner. Uh, to get those results rather than trying to think through. So again, the, the irony is obvious and stands as this dichotomy of uh, everybody uh, politically always talks about how important education is. And yet when the rubber meets the road, uh, the, the funding, the support, the deep understanding of what it's going to take to be successful just doesn't seem to be there. So we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, I want to pivot now uh, to just and, and continue this conversation about standardized testing, uh, because I think we've we've transitioned away from the most recent announcement and really are now talking about standardized testing and its role in a balanced assessment system. So, you know, some people still, uh, no matter what you say, they're going to say that standardized tests are are evil. Um, and they are the bane of our existence. And others, you know, I think have a more measured response and, and think about the, the role it potentially could play. My, my question would be, uh, what is it that educators still don't understand fully about standardized testing? What are some of the things that maybe people still misunderstand around the role of standardized testing in our system? Right. Oh, well, I think that the major issue and the major sort of source of misunderstanding really relates to validity issues. And we have this mistaken understanding that validity is a quality of a particular assessment, but it's really not. Validity is an aspect of the results and how we interpret the results, how we use the results. So any particular test could be valid for one purpose, but not valid for another. And because all tests are designed for a particular purpose, where we get into trouble is when we start using a test designed for one purpose, for another purpose, for which it was not designed and is ill-suited. And those relate to the, those validity issues. So when it comes to the kind of things we are doing in school for, for kids, there is, it's not like we have a, a valid test of their mathematic knowledge, but we have a test that might be really valid if we're looking at computational skills, but not so valid if we're looking at problem-solving skills. And so it's, it's getting people to understand that it's the the test designed for the purpose, and are we using it for that purpose or are we using it for some other purpose? The critical issue with regard to purpose too, instructionally, is 
is a, a term that was developed by our, our good friend Jim Poplin, who talked about the uh, instructional sensitivity of tests. And what he meant was, are, are the tests designed in such a way that if teachers taught better, students would show better results on the test? He said, that's an instructionally sensitive test. Unfortunately, many of the tests that are used in education are specifically designed to be instructionally insensitive. And, and where we get into trouble is we often use instructionally insensitive tests to measure the quality of instructional programs. And that's always a mistake because then you're completely destroying all the issues of validity, which, which says it's just not valid for that purpose. Yeah. It, it seems to me that, again, I, I just what keeps running through my head right now is that the conversations around standardized testing just remain too superficial and, and, and not really intricate enough. You know, when, when we have people make these proclamations on social media or elsewhere talking about, you know, standardized testing uh, down with it all. The, the nuanced conversation is understanding, for example, the difference between an ACT, SAT uh, versus a, a statewide assessment. Can you, can you draw that contrast for listeners? Just, you know, again, looking at all standardized tests are not created equal. They're not all designed for the same purpose. And that contrast, I think, is really a, a really important distinction to make. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, one of the major points that I tried to make in this blog was that yeah. Uh, in many states now, we're trying to use ACT results or SAT results to measure the quality of instructional programs in secondary schools. Those tests, uh, both the ACT and SAT, were designed to discriminate among students for the purpose of decision-making, specifically with regard to college admissions. Now, in order to do that, they have to maximize the differences between the students and the examinees taking the test. To do that, what you want to do is have items that, that only about 50% of the people get right. That's the maximum discrimination in an item. 50% get it right, 50% get it wrong. It spreads out the difference. Now, suppose there's an item on the ACT that, that measures a really important concept. But because it's important, teachers recognize that it's really important. And as a result of their recognition, they begin teaching that particular concept really well. As a result, more students start answering that item correctly on the ACT. What the ACT does is throws it out of the test. Not because it's an unimportant concept, because it doesn't serve the purpose of the test. And the purpose of the test is to maximize, spread kids out. Uh, if all score close together on that test, then it would be hard to discriminate between them. Now, if you take a criterion reference test where we're actually wanting to measure how well kids learn an instructionally sensitive test. You want to do just the opposite. You don't want to spread out scores, but you want them close together. You want all students to show they've learned this really well. And so where the one seeks to maximize variation in scores, the other seeks to reduce it. They're completely opposite. And so that's why you can't use either for the purpose that was intended. A criterion reference test would not be a good test for measuring, for discriminating among students to enter into selective college universities. You need something that's going to spread them up. But if you want to measure the quality of instructional program and how well teachers are doing, teachers are having all their kids learn really well. That's great. I mean, you, that's exactly what you want. you want. You want very little variation in the scores. If everybody's learning excellent, well, you set out to teach, that's terrific. Now, it also opens up really important conversations about how rigorous are those standards and how demanding are they? Are they sufficiently challenging? I mean, we can reduce the variation test scores just by testing really easy things. 
And so what we need to do is find that balance by looking at what we're testing and asking the question, are these things sufficiently challenging? Are they rigorous? Are they most important things students should learn? And once we said that, then our goal is to have all students learn it really well. Yeah. So, so the, for the states who and, and districts that are looking to say, for example, the ACT, it's almost a self-defeating effort because the, the more effectively you teach and the, and the, the, more, the, the higher or more proficient the performance across the board, the more likely that item gets thrown out and therefore the results don't really show. So you're almost defeating yourself. It might be easier, but you're not really getting the results you're looking for. That's exactly the case. In fact, there are states where every student in the state is required to take the ACT. Now, I, I realize the purpose for that. And, and one of the good purposes for it is to help students who may not think of themselves as college material recognize that they could really do well in college, that this is something that's available to them. And I, I think that's a really valuable purpose. The problem is that if, if those states start using that, then the teachers are going to say, well, let's find out what's on the ACT and really teach to that. But the ACT cannot have that happen. Because colleges don't, if you say, well, the ACT is required in, in uh, you know, Illinois and Michigan and Kentucky and other states, well, we can't give the teachers, the students from those states, any particular advantage when it comes to college admissions. So we've got to make sure that we keep the scores in those states comparable to all the other states where everybody has an open opportunity for it. So it actually, it, it compels the ACT people to work harder to keep the scores in those states down, right. which is really kind of counterintuitive. Exactly. But again, it gets back to the purpose of the test. Yeah, yeah. It, it just seems to me that, a, uh, I, I used this expression earlier, it just seems to me an adult conversation about standardized testing is something that is really lacking uh, in, in so many different uh, places, jurisdictions, levels, et cetera. Uh, Tom, I want to finish up today by uh, addressing, of course, the, the elephant in the room and certainly... Uh, very relevant for us here in 2021 and given uh, just the the monumental shift in society. The issue, the other issue, of course, is equity and, and racial bias, uh, which as has been a charge that has been levied against uh, uh, standardized testing and uh, and and maybe rightly so in a lot of ways. Um, the, the 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 insensitivity and and racial bias that can emer emerge in that. So how in your mind does that at least what's the pathway forward to making sure that we can fulfill the promise of what standardized testing, the best of what it might have to offer while making sure that there is uh, some culturally responsive work that's done to ensure that there is true equity across the, uh, across the board. Right. See, my advantage in this, Tom, is that uh, the doctoral program in which I studied at the University of Chicago under Benjamin Bloom, uh, it's called the MESA program, Measurement, Evaluation, Statistical Analysis. And they were really, really, they really emphasized the idea that you have to understand the history of assessment in order to know what changes we need to make. And there was another, a faculty member at the University of Chicago years and years ago, named Allison Davis, an African-American scholar who was just brilliant. And his idea was that intelligence tests are culturally biased. And so worked together with a, uh, another fellow to develop a, a kind of intelligence test that they call the Davis-Eels Games, because they thought even the name test uh, was, was culturally biased. And so they developed these, these games to try to 
equate their or do away with those inequities that existed. And they were able to do it in Chicago, but as soon as they went outside Chicago, then things fell apart. Uh, with that with the history, what what Allison Davis found was that it wasn't necessarily a, a cultural issue, but it was an economic and environmental issue. You know, these these kids were raised in in environments that were were really deficient in terms of providing reading materials in the home, providing adults that would read to kids, um, having kids that would see models of literacy, seeing your parents reading, things like that. And changing an instructional program in the school wasn't going to remedy those things overnight. Now, they also were strong advocates of preschool education because they felt as soon as we could get kids into sort of literacy-rich environments and have them reading that they we could eliminate those differences. It wasn't really a cultural difference. It wasn't really an, an, an ethnic difference. It was just an environment difference. So if we could enhance the environment in such a way to provide kids with that more enriched experience, that, that there was no reason why they couldn't be truly excellent scholars in any subject area or domain. And I think that we've kind of understood that truth. I hope that we've gotten to the point now where we understand that that is the truth, but it also reveals a challenge to us. And I think that the pandemic made those inequities all the more real for us. And maybe the silver lining to the pandemic is by making it real, we understand that we have to do some things to, to balance that. So I've been encouraged by the movements that we see to make sure all homes have adequate access to technology and to internet. And so that that does not have to not have to limit you and what you can accomplish for, for it overall. And, and maybe that that silver lining has allowed us to think about these equity issues in different ways and then go out and do something about it. Right. And, and that that, as you say, the silver lining, the, the legacy of the pandemic is uh, not forgetting that uh, uh, closing the socioeconomic divide and closing the access divide is probably going to accelerate uh, the the leveling off and and the balancing of of the approach to assessment and how uh, all students have access to excellence and the ability to maximize their potential. Uh, yeah. yeah, the other important part of that too, Thomas, that it, it showed that it, it wasn't even parenting. Uh, I mean, the, the parents of kids who are being raised in in these economically disadvantaged homes are just as committed and just as passionate about having your kids do well and want to support them as part as much as they can. It's just that they're having to work two and three jobs, you know, to do it. And and the the kind of adult support available in the home isn't always there. So I think your point is is really on target. It's helping us to recognize those and and see what we can do to support parents in ways that will allow them to give the support to their children that they really want to. Yeah. Uh, Tom, uh, I, I feel like there's another episode down the road of uh, a deeper dive into standardized testing and, and, uh, and again, trying to have that uh, mature conversation about uh, the role that standardized testing can play uh, in our balanced assessment system. And, and not that to overemphasize its results, but also to understand that there is a role uh, to play, much like there is a role for classroom assessment, much like there is a role for 
uh, district-wide assessments. There's every assessment level has potentially a positive role in the overall assessment system, but it's all in the execution. We have to, uh, we really have to to know what we're talking about. And if we can get political leaders and and others to pay attention to what really matters, we can have a much more uh, learning-focused experience uh, for all learners and teachers. Any final words uh, for listeners uh, listening in, just thinking about the task at hand now going forward? Um, any words of wisdom, final pieces of advice that you have for, uh, for listeners? <laughs> well, I, I just reflect what you already said, Tom, and that is that it really comes down to how we use the results. Yeah. And are we using the results for the purpose of really helping more kids learn well? I think that our move toward gathering information from states is going to be used well to provide additional support for public educators and to really improve the quality of instructional programs. Not that we're going to, as, as you've written so well about, you know, this, mm-hmm. the, not that we're going to try to remedy any gap that exists, yeah. but to really enhance the educational experiences of children, regardless of the format that that takes place. Right. We're probably going to be in different places around the world in remote learning situations for some time yet, but what can we do within those to really provide a quality educational learning experience right. for, for kids? Yeah. So I think, I think it's if we use the results well, thoughtfully and wisely, and always concentrate on how they can be used to help more kids learn better, then we'll really be in good shape. Yeah. Tom, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, on such short notice to jump in for uh, a quick conversation. Uh, your insights, your expertise is always greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I hope we can get together soon. I hope so too. Thanks, Tom.